Hello and welcome to the Build with Clay podcast. I am your host, Clay Davis. This podcast is designed to introduce you to people from across the world who have one thing in common. They want to grow in their life and inspire others. You'll get a front row seat to hear about how they define their mindset and their purpose. We'll unearth their habits, their failures, and learnings throughout their journey. And this will allow you to take those habits, those failures, and those learnings and apply them to your personal growth journey, no matter where you're trying to build yourself and grow. This podcast is designed for you, so thank you for being here. Prepare to meet interesting people, hear fun stories, learn something new, and plan to leave inspired. On this episode, we build with Zach Stone. Zach is a second-time guest as he joined us on episode 38 with his business partner, Joel Fleming, to discuss all things real estate and life. Zach graduated from Wake Forest University with a degree in business and enterprise management. Over the years that followed, Zach started and successfully closed a private debt fund, assisted several small businesses as a consultant, started a private equity search fund, and now runs Devereaux alongside Joel. In this episode, we discuss kidnapping. Yes, kidnapping. Water skiing, stoicism, decision-making, juicing an onion, how we are finite, weight loss, diet, optionality, and so much more. As you can see, we touched a lot of topics. Zach has one of the most unique perspectives of anyone in my life, and it was a pleasure to have him on and discuss these among many other topics. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Zach Stone. Super excited to welcome Zach Stone to the Build With Clay podcast. Again, Zach was a part of episode 38 with his business partner, Joel Fleming, and we had a lot of fun talking about their partnership. And afterwards, I said, Zach, I got to just have you on, on the pod individually. Joel obviously brought you down a notch. I need you to, <laughs> to be able to come and shine on your own here. So um, I have no doubt this will be a wide-ranging conversation, and I, I don't personally know where it'll go, but we have a lot of topics. You and I just sat on the couch down here in the basement and talked about all the places that we could go in this conversation. So to start, I want to welcome you. So welcome, Zach. Thanks. Glad to be back. And I'm going to start with some get to know yous. So would you rather be stuck in a broken elevator or a broken ski lift? Hmm. Broken elevator, for sure. Uh, I live in a, a high-rise building, so it's something I think about very, very often. It's old elevators. They make a lot of funny noises. But at least there, you're shielded from the elements uh, on a ski lift. I assume it's winter. Maybe that's the wrong assumption, but it is quite cold, quite exposed. I've been stuck on ski lifts before. Miserable, so I'm going to take the elevator for sure. Yeah. Would you rather have a cook or a maid? Cook. Definitely. Uh, yeah, that's that one. I don't even have to think about that one. It's just so hard to make food and come up with all the different things. And I could tell a cook or chef, say chef. I could tell a chef, here are the categories of things that I like. Here are the flavor profiles I enjoy. I want you to come up with like a new idea, you know, at least, I don't know, once a meal or, you know, maybe try a different like ethnicity, you know, every month or every week or something like that. Yeah, that'd be fun. Made not so much. Yeah. yeah. It'd be okay. Like things would be cleaner for sure. But I don't know. The food's very impactful. Of course. Yeah. And I know we're going to get into some of that. Right, right. Would you rather be 
on The Bachelor, as I'm asking this question, I'm like, wait, has Zach ever seen any of these shows? Because I barely have. And Zach is like way more minimalistic and and less in on things than I am. So would you, but what, but all that said, would you rather be on The Bachelor or on Survivor? That's a really loaded question because I am married. So I feel like I have to say Survivor. Um, and I think generally speaking, yes, I would be on Survivor. I don't know that I've ever seen a full episode of either of those shows. Um, and if I have, it probably was the bachelor. Um, yeah, I, I would say survivor. Yeah. Smart man, smart, that, that married seems kind man. Of fun right and, yeah. And I'm married. So it's a weird, be weird to say the bachelor. <laughs> would you rather own your own boat or own your own airplane? Oh, uh, definitely a boat. Uh, I was a competitive water skier in college and I dreamed of owning a, a ski boat at one point and had talked about co-owning a boat with a good friend of mine at some point after college and that didn't materialize. Uh, I would never own either of those things, honestly. Uh, but yeah, if I had to pick one, I'd say the boat. Um, boat, the boat acronym is bust out another thousand or bring out another thousand. It's just anything that goes wrong. Just it's a thousand dollars. Yeah. I, I feel like the cost of ownership though, for a boat versus an airplane though, it's really different. Like, Fair. although I had a, a friend that, uh, he purchased a used aircraft and I think he bought it for, I want to say it was like $60,000. Yeah. Your face right now. That's surprise. Most people think of like, you know, the, the G7s, you know, and the, the really expensive planes like flying through the sky with the billionaires. But um, I think you can get into the air, air or sorry, aircraft game with, uh, with, with not that much money, which is surprising. Don't know that you want to, but uh, risk of failure is different too. You know, if you fail with a small plane, you're dead. You fail with a boat, or in my case, you don't put the plug in. You may almost sink the boat, but you're probably going to live. <laughs> See, all, all valid thoughts there. <laughs> The water skiing thing, I knew that you were a competitive water skier. How does one compete in water skiing? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and it's a weird sport for anyone that hasn't watched it. But um, yeah, we grew up kind of enamored with water sports. Uh, my dad just grew up on the lake, always on the lake, uh, Car Lake, actually. And they did sailing and power boating and all sorts of different things like that. And um, and he was a slalom skier. And, um, at one point I think I was born and maybe my brothers as well. Um, but he could also barefoot ski, which was the Holy grail for us. And so we just, as kids, I always knew my dad could barefoot ski and that's cool. And, and so it took a long time because, uh, my mom made him sell the ski boat, uh, at some point and we didn't have like a, a proper ski boat really ever at any point. Um, since I was like a, a baby, you know, maybe one, one and a half. And, uh, so I went to college and joined the water ski team, which I didn't know existed at the time at Wake Forest. And, uh, we were using some guy's boat and then eventually we became a real club. And the guy that was the president at the time, uh, very shrewd guy, good with money. And, uh, he was able to get the school to subsidize the purchase of a ski boat for our club. And we weren't that good. I mean, I'm, that almost indicates that we were decent. We didn't win anything. And, um, and so we just got on the lake constantly, like all through college. But to answer your actual question, uh, it's a series of buoys. And a lot of times if you see, um, if you see a lot of like buoys that look like they're in a, a pattern with a line of two buoys and then like a staggered six buoys. So it, it'd be like, um, I'm forgetting actually the direction they start now, 
um, say the right, and then it's and then you you go around the right buoy, and then you cut a hard diagonal. So you're like uh, weaving, left, you're like you're, weaving, you're kind weaving. of like a, ski, yeah. uh, a so the, snow skier. Just yeah, like a snow. yeah, kind of. And the boat's just staying on the straight line, and and it has a, a GPS like regulated speed system, so it holds a constant speed the entire time. Because if you're pulling a competitive slalom skier, they will actually slow the boat down, like when they're pulling. So so these boats have these really precisely regulated throttles that that maintain the speed, and so you compete with the speed of the boat and then rope length, and the speed is only adjusted for like more novice skiers so um like the competitive guys it's at 36 miles an hour is what the boat speed is and then they start shortening the rope um so i think it start full off is like 75 feet and then uh 15 off is 60 feet and then they keep going shorter so obviously as you move as you make the rope shorter it becomes very very hard to get around all of those buoys at that speed um and so i can't remember what the world record is it's oh man it, it's 30 or no, I'm sorry. It's uh 43 or 44, 45 off. I think, um, is the rope. I mean, it's, if you saw a guy being pulled at that rope length, you'd be like, he's basically on the ski platform and you have to be a certain height to even be able to do this because like they like visually they're fully laid down basically in the water. So their, their arm is fully extended with the rope out and they kind of bring it back to the other hand and then they just hold on. It's like a rocket, you know, cutting across the, the wake. But um, really, really cool. It, definitely an adrenaline rush. You're going really fast. Um, some pretty bad wipeouts. And uh, yeah, so we would compete in Georgia and Florida and places in North Carolina, a lot of camping. Um, yeah, it, it, was, it was a lot of fun. What a life. Yeah. Joel's wife, Jordan, uh, was on that team with me. That's how I actually got to know her. So that was my contact point with Joel eventually. Did you ever learn how to barefoot ski? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. So yes, years after college, eventually I was able to successfully a couple of times and then do it a lot because the boat speed for barefoot skiing is close to or in excess of 40 miles an hour. That's fast. It's really fast. Um, and the water has to be very, very smooth. And so there's only certain times of day and, and you know, you can't have any boat traffic. Are you just on your heels the whole time? Right. So there's lots of ways of doing it. So deep, the deep water start long line, deep water is you have this special suit with tons of padding on the back. And the first time I attempted this, I was just using a wetsuit. You cannot do that. Like you have a major lake water enema. Um, and so you have this special suit with tons of padding and you basically wrap your ankles around the line. So the boat get the boat puts it in gear. So it's just idling basically. And so you wrap your, sorry, you wrap your feet around the line and you say, hit it. And then you throw your head back into the water. So you go underwater and then the boat just rockets forward as fast as possible to get you up to speed. And so then you start planing. So when the boat gets up to a certain speed, you're riding on your butt in this really padded suit until the boat gets up to speed, 40 miles an hour. So you are being pulled at 40 miles an hour, sitting on top of the water and you've got your feet out in front of you. And you basically just close your eyes and you put your heels down near your butt and then you just stand up on the water. So you don't like thrust your feet down to the water. You actually just stand up on top of it. It is a surreal experience. I mean, it's like walking on water. It is the wildest, wildest experience on water, but it is so painful falling. Like, I mean, it's so dangerous. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, 40 miles drums. an hour is I mean, you're, so you're, fast. you're rolling around like a rag doll and, 
that was the end of my dad's uh, ski boat career was, um, I think the incident was we were supposed to go to Florida for a business trip and my mom was really excited about it. You know, she had just had me and she was just looking forward to going on this all expense paid trip to Orlando. And I think my dad went skiing or barefooting or both the day before they were supposed to fly out and he took a fall and busted his eardrum and like just you can imagine the agony of that with airplanes and pressurization and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I think that ended his, uh, his barefoot and his slalom skiing career. But yes, many, many years later, I took up the mantle for him. Wow. Man, that's <laughs> something I've never done and I don't envision myself ever doing. Yeah. I do have a growth mindset, but I don't ah, believe that. It, it is that exhilarating. Yeah. Well, in the most classic segue ever, as you talk, start talking about water skiing, the obvious next topic is kidnapping. <laughs> As, as, as we normally do here on the build with clay podcast, I ask the guest, have you ever been involved in a kidnapping? And most people do say yes. And we get into a long conversation. So you are no different, Zach. So have you ever been involved in a kidnapping? Yeah. So I I think I like to, I like to think of this as on the last episode where Joel and I were doing this, I, at the end, I put in a hook about the kidnapping story and it's almost like you go on a first date with someone and you leave something behind in that person's house, their car, whatever. So they're going to find it and then call you and you'll have to come back. So I think that's kind of what I did here with this podcast with the kidnapping story. Like, it is, it is you the can't only mention <laughs> kidnapping and have someone not say, you know what? You need to come back and talk about that. Right. It is the only you reason you're sitting on my couch. You right can't now. <laughs> do that. You'd be doing a disservice to your listeners. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So that is not a fun story. I am laughing about it now because it was um, 11 years ago, maybe something like that. Yeah. Um, and it did not involve me personally. Yeah. So the, the story is essentially, yeah, part of a longer narrative involving my engagement and then subsequent marriage. I'm still married to this woman, by the way, just, just to be clear, um, 11 years of like that. So you've kidnapped her for this long. Yeah. That's what I'm saying right now. That's my <laughs> confession. Uh, no. So we were, uh, we were engaged and it was a bit of a rocky, um, relationship with the parents kind of from the get go. And, and for weird reasons, actually, uh, which should have been, were red flags for sure. Um, this is not something I've not told my wife, by the way, it's not the first time she's hearing me say that I was given a lot of red flags and, who knows what red flag she was given for me. Um, but anyways, yeah, so she had moved, um, she had moved to Raleigh for grad school, uh, at NC state. And I was working at the time over at cap trust and, um, first job and you know, it tough first jobs can be, can be hard. It's tough for a variety of reasons. And, and so we were navigating this engagement. And so I had, I had asked, done all the kind of proper things. I had gone and talked to her dad beforehand. We, uh, we met for, I guess it was breakfast, maybe lunch, but, um, out in like, you know, Kerner's, the Kernersville area, um, sat down, you know, asked his permission and, you know, he said yes. And anyways, yeah, super excited. She had come down to look for apartments, um, and her parents were with her. And there had been some moments while we were dating that her parents had expressed, you know, dislike of me for a variety of reasons. And it was usually because of my appearance. Um, was never one to care that much about what I looked like and kind of scoffed at that in general, but you know, we're riding around and she's looking at the North Hills apartments actually. So again, pretty close to here. And they're talking about how they love the security and all these different things. And, and, uh, and I was like, oh yeah, like, you know, there's still crime here. Like, uh, and, you know, it is a city and I didn't really say much. And, 
and I think at least I think this is how the the legend goes of this that I was wearing these topsiders that I had had forever, and they had yeah you know, they were ratty looking you know they just they were old they just didn't really say anything at the time they left and and then all of a sudden there was this just eruption basically and they were really just they weren't going to have the marriage they just they didn't want it to happen anymore and so at this point i say all of a sudden at this point megan is now living in north hills she is attending grad school and and we're not married at this point and uh the dad calls and basically says we had been doing premarital counseling at, at the church that we were attending at the time and um wonderful wonderful pastor alan mosley just one of the one of the greatest people i've i've ever had the fortune of knowing and you know dad calls and basically is like you know you, you guys not question but you're going to be doing another round of premarital counseling with our pastor uh, at their church in Kernersville, Triad Baptist. And I was like, like, no, we're, we're, we're not going to be doing that. Um, you know, Megan had told me the, the reason for that was for him to basically talk us out of getting married. And they had told Megan that apparently. And, you know, that started the, the real storm. And so, uh, so they came down and, you know, I was there, uh, at the time and, they go to her apartment over at North Hills. And, you know, I'm just like, hey, you know, what what's going on? Like, wouldn't really say anything to me. And so the, whole, the whole family was here at this point. So this was mom, dad, and she has a brother. And so they storm into the apartment, like lock the door. And like, I'm standing outside the apartment, like starting to freak out because like, I hear stuff like breaking inside. Like, it sounds like, again, I have no idea what's happening in there. So we call the police. And, you know, the police show up and because it's a domestic disturbance, basically. And, uh, you know, so the cops show up and everything is supposedly fine and they leave. And uh, and so, you know, Megan is telling me now, like, oh, hey, I'm going to I guess I'm going to have to go back to Kernersville. Like they're there to get her, basically. And so anyway, so we're at North Hills now and we all leave. Police clear it, say it's OK whatever that means. And we have her stuff. So we have like a bag of her things. Um, and she's going to come and get the stuff. This is what she t tells me on the phone. And so the parents and the brother and her in the dad's car, they show up to my parents' neighborhood, which is where we were going to, you know, Megan had told me, Hey, I need, I need this stuff. And so I was going to hand her the stuff there and get out of the car. I say, here, here's the bag. Like, can I speak to Megan? They're like, no, no, no. And like the windows are tinted on the back. And, and I'm like, no, like I, I, I want to speak to me. We're engaged at this point, by the way. And she's 22. I, I should have mentioned that. Like, yeah, this is not a 16 year old girl. It's not a child bride sort of situation. She's an adult. And what I did not know at the time was she was trying to get out of the car because she was being held there against her will. And Again, I, I only learned this later. Like her brother was holding her down, like in the car, would not let her leave. And so like mom, dad, brother, car, restraining an adult, not letting her leave the car to get out. And they took her back to Kernersville and we didn't hear for, for days. So like they took away everything, no computer, phone, locked her in a room. 
And again, I obviously learned about this after the fact, like at the time I had no idea what was happening. Like, you know, I just, I, I remember the, the feeling while that was going on vividly, you know, I thought, okay, well, this engagement is over. Like this relationship to this person that I love is done. And like, it's been ripped away in this instant. Like, like what, what is possibly going on here? Anyways, and so, you know, true to form, they drug her up to their pastor and sat her down. And the pastor was complicit with this. Never forget the guy's name, Rob Decker. And, you know, totally complicit with the whole thing, you know, thought that, you know, the dad could control the, the daughter up until the point that she was married. Chattel, basically, like it was property. She was his property to do with whatever he wanted to. And up until the point where she was wed to a man, she was nothing like, and, and they still believe that. In fact, that belief has probably strengthened for them, uh, you know, over the years and been added to with racism and, and, uh, and so the pastor was just, you know, I guess love this. Now the cynic in me says they were donating a lot of money to the church and, you know, that pastor didn't want to, you know, rub the dad the wrong way and, you know, lose those donations. And, um, anyway, so, so all that was happening and eventually she, I guess was allowed a phone call or something and said like, Hey, I'm, I'm okay. And, and also said, I'm coming back to Raleigh, you know, to get some more stuff. And again, after the fact, what I learned was she had told her parents to give the ring back. So she was going to just end the, you know, the relationship at this point. And, you know, I'll never forget when she was telling me all about this, because like, this is someone, I doubt many people on this, that will be listening to this know my wife, but like, this is somebody that, that has a very, very strict moral and ethical compass. And it's someone that I think maybe not in the technical language, but described themselves as a deontologist, you know, so somebody that thinks there are certain things that are right and wrong that don't depend on the situation. They are just right or wrong. Most people are probably consequentialists that if they are put in certain positions, they will do things that may be morally questionable, but are tuned to that situation. And, and so this is somebody that does not act that way in any, in, even after that really would not act that way. But as she told me, she basically, you know, realized that the only way she was going to get out of that was to lie. And, you know, it's the classic, you know, conundrum that somebody has that's, you know, in, in Nazi Germany, you're, you're hiding Jews, like, do you lie to the German authorities? And I mean, that's just a kind of a, almost an overdone philosophical thought exercise. And it's rare for someone to be put into a position where they are being held against their will and they have to essentially navigate that situation and potentially bend those, you know, rules to do that. And, and so she did. And, uh, and her mom drove her back and it was at the times of Brugger's bagels. I don't think it's there anymore at the foot of the cap trust tower. And it was my birthday that day. So I, I remember the day and she had like made a cake and like, you know, all this stuff, because that was, that was part of the thing. Like, I'm going to give the ring back. It's his birthday. Like, just take me down there to deal with it. Anyway. So she walks into the Brugger's and it was a public spot too. That was important. Uh, she walks in the Brugger's and you know, the mom like sits down in the corner or whatever is watching. And then Megan comes over to me and 
you know, it's fairly emotional reunion of, of sorts. But, uh, you know, at that point she's telling me some of this and she's like, yeah, this was the only way I could get down here, but like, I'm not going back with them. And so the two of us walked over to the mom and said, like, leave, you know, we're not, she's not going back with you. This is done. And so, you know, that was like, that was like the moment, you know, that, that, well, one, she was able to get out of that situation, but, um, yeah, so it, it was a weird, you can imagine anything that followed from that would not be normal. So, I mean, you know, it was a, they excommunicate her at various points. They stopped talking to her. Um, then they would swing back around and start talking to her again. And, um, you know, the, the wedding was tumultuous as you can imagine they pulled. So they were at this point, we were several months into the planning, you know, they totally withdrew everything, like pulled deposits back that they had made for venues. Like, I mean, just pulled the rug out, you know, basically thought we'll smoke them out. You know, if we take everything away, we will stop the wedding. And again, this was at the pastor's advice and, and the brother, I probably should mention that the brother was, you know, kind of the, I like to think of him as the Pope of the family. Like he's, you know, he's, he has a degree from Oxford, uh, divinity degree. He's obsessed with the Bible and like historical figures, you know, uh, antiquity, uh, for biblical scholars. And so everything he does ostensibly comes from the Bible or his understanding. And, and that goes the same for the parents. Um, so they're, they're very, very Christian like, uh, and that's, that's what they would say. And so, you know, that obviously presented kind of a crisis of knowledge for somebody like me that's seeing, you know, people on two sides of this huge divide that are both saying like, we are, we are both Christians, but we are acting radically different because then the people that were at our church, you know, thought that they were crazy. Like, you know, dad sent letters to the elders of the church. Like, I mean, it, it was just, it's hard to, you don't have enough time here to explain kind of the weirdness of, of all of that. Yeah. What yeah. a, what a wild and frustrating ride that yeah. had to have been. And I can sense the, I mean, I felt rage as you were telling that story. And so I can only imagine, especially even younger, right. Not having probably sure. the level of maturity that you do today to think like, wait, this is how pe some people operate. This is, and, that's right. And, and, you know, and treating someone that, you know, you probably love more than anything in the world that way. I mean, I, we, yeah, we could go down rabbit holes on, on all of that, but I appreciate you sharing. I, I know that there will be uh, pieces, as you said, you reframed all the craziness and wildness that happened with that. So I know there'll be pieces as we go through more of your journey and there's so many things. I mean, you're such a thoughtful, well-read person that I know you've put a lot of thought into how to reframe what happened there, but also how, you know, I, I mean, as an example, I know that when we had a conversation with Joel, that Joel is now on his weight loss journey. I think he's probably lost over a hundred pounds. It's he incredible. Is, oh, it's incredible. And it's so incredible. But I, I know that I, it makes me happy thinking about that. And, yeah. And, and we need some happiness. I know there's been a oh, lot man. of rage yeah, pent yeah. up. Yeah. Move on couple. to something else. Yeah. Let's <laughs> think about Joel's weight loss journey. That, that does make me happy genuinely. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you went on a weight loss journey. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. Um, yeah, so at this point, it's been, I don't know, maybe eight, eight and a half, eight years, something like that. But um, yeah, so a close friend of mine from high school uh, is Australian, got married in Australia, and I absconded to Australia for a month. Megan loves to tell this story, too, because she thought I was going to be gone for two weeks. And um, 
the day before, or maybe the day, actually, I think it was while we were heading to the airport. She was like, okay, so, so when am I going to pick you up? And, uh, I said, ah, you know, four weeks. That was the, the date I gave. And she's like, wait a second. That's four weeks from now. Like you said two weeks. I was like, did I like, I can't really remember. See ya. <laughs> and no wonder her parents didn't like you. <laughs> Got on the plane, like, and, uh, and went to Australia. Anyways, came, came back four weeks later and, uh, uh, and my best friend, um, I can't remember if I talked about him on the last episode, but, um, yeah, he is to say he is an influential person in my life is, is an understatement, but, um, both in being a catalyst for, I would say almost every major shift or movement has been somehow tied to him. Like, and some of that is by his reading suggestions. He is unbelievably intelligent and thoughtful. Um, and, uh, Anyways, uh, started with a book and came back from Australia and somehow was looking at a photo, um, not from that trip actually, but from a different trip. And it was of me on like one of those cruise ship surf things. You know what I'm talking about? It's like an endless wave. It was su- super fun. And I was like bent over like surfing, you know, and my stomach was like rolled over my bathing suit. And I was like, huh, uh-oh. How much did you weigh at that time? Uh, 205, 210. And I was not a muscular 205 or 210. And uh, I saw that and I was like, I don't know. That was it. That was a click. And I went up when I got back from the trip just to hang out with my friend. And we were walking around um, Elon's campus, actually. He didn't go to Elon. But he had picked up this book, Eat to Live, by Joel Furman. And he was telling me about it. And he was telling me about how you know, he was, he had read it and how he's talking to his parents about this. And, um, I was like, Oh, cool. And I, you know, seen the photo and I was kind of thinking about this. And so I got, I think he gave me a copy of the book, actually read it. And I was like, Oh, cool. Like this really makes sense to me. Cause it was kind of a, a scientific discourse on eating. And the guy was not an advocate for being a vegan, uh, but he was an advocate for like a night. I think he, it was like a 90, 10. So like 90% of your, your food, your diet, daily diet should be, um, plant-based and then like 10% animal products if you need to, but, but it'd be like fish. I hate fish. So that basically means I read that to a hundred percent plant, plant-based. And, um, so I think, let's see, I read it and I can't, I'm fuzzy on the timeline here, but, um, pretty sure when I finished it, like the next day I was like, I'm going to do this. And I put a pound of spinach and, like some like lemon slices in a blender and just blended it all. So it was like a pound of spinach smoothie with like lemon. And there may have been one other ingredient to it, but it was all maybe ginger or something. I'm yeah, trying to think of what would probably have. ginger. Yeah. That was probably, that would have been the natural thing to put in there and promptly threw up, uh, after drinking a couple of sips of it. And at the time we lived near Sassoul over North Raleigh. And so what we ended up doing was just, eating at Sassoul every night for dinner, which is a Mediterranean, which place. is a Mediterranean. Uh, yeah, that's right. They have a lot of kale, lentil based stuff, super wonderful, wonderful restaurant. And, um, ended up eating there every night for a year, basically. And because neither of us knew how to cook any of this stuff. And like, you know, Megan's good old Southern, like full fat, you know, ham hock and the green bean, you know, vegetable is like those jello salads, you know, kind of thing with like cream cheese and, you know, whatever. Um, and so neither of us really knew what to do with that. And she actually did it too. Like had not read the book, had not really, 
You well, know. she saw the writing on the wall. She was like, "My husband, y'all were married at the yes, time. Yes, yes, yeah. Yes. My husband's doing this. I know his personality. Like, there I, you go. I that's exactly what she would have if she were sitting here. That those are the words she would use. She's like, I saw the writing on the wall. I like sleeping on the floor. Anyway, so yeah, she she started doing it too, and eventually we learned to you know cook some stuff. But the staple things were, um, for me, it was it was kind of viewing food food as fuel instead of as something that um, you always had to luxuriate in. And so I wanted to kind of build my own system to, to be successful with this, but yeah, it was not vegetarian. It was vegan. And the way we accomplished that for a, a maybe a year or two, um, we had cheat meals on, uh, on Saturday and Sunday, we were allowed to kind of, we allowed ourselves to eat whatever we wanted to. And every other meal was strictly vegan. And so Saturday would roll around and, you know, I mean, eating like jelly beans and like go out and have a huge hamburger like Saturday night and like a milkshake. And we did that. It started feeling pretty bad afterwards. That's what switched to 100% vegan. Um, It no longer was a treat. It was something we almost had to force ourselves to do. But uh, but anyway, so started doing that and and quickly lost weight just because I was. yeah. And for the time. So how how long did you incorporate the cheat day before it was? Oh, I, I can't even, I don't even want to do this. Yeah. Like two years. Oh yeah. Like, like uh, quite a bit. And and that was enough just because of the, like the massive reduction in calories. Like that was enough by itself to be losing weight. But, um, I started doing like a little, you know, calisthenic workout thing. Laird Hamilton had something for free at the time. And it's funny because Joel has actually mentioned Laird Hamilton in his own, you know, nutritional exercise journey. Uh, it was kind of cool to see that come full circle. But at what point did you do? And I know, I know I'm asking very specific questions, but there's probably people out there that are thinking about how do I begin the journey. So if we think like really tactically, you it all started with food. At what point in the journey did you incorporate or start intentionally doing something exercise wise? Yeah, immediately. So it, it, those two things happened together. It was just the intensity of the exercise. So like, you know, I would tell somebody, and, and Joel and I talk about this a lot too that if you're overweight running is going to be really painful like and it's just i'm not saying don't do it but like i'm saying be really strategic with that and like probably primarily focused on fast walking um but uh swimming so i was a swimmer in high school and swimming is a wonderful workout for someone that's overweight because it is not a hindrance in the pool to be big in fact it helps you um so you have greater buoyance and so there was a pool nearby at the, at the YMCA, Pool A Finley, the one I grew up, you know, as a kid going to camp. And, uh, and so I swam, you know, just nothing crazy, just going in and basically setting a clock, you know, swimming 15 laps or 20 laps or whatever. And, um, and then doing these really light, like uh, high rep calisthenic type stuff. So I wasn't really using any heavy weights or anything like that. And yeah, so like I would make not a spinach smoothie, but so from a food standpoint, you mentioned tactically. I think that's a good question because I, I think the reason it was successful was from the very beginning, very tactical thinking with food, not as much on the exercise side. That was more just adapting as the weight was coming off and what I felt like doing. I decided to eliminate or minimize choices I had to make with my food. And I do that with my wardrobe too. So I, <laughs> you see me, I'm going to be mostly wearing the same stuff from day to day. So... I had a ton of frozen fruit and I made a huge smoothie in the morning that was entirely fruit. There are no vegetables in it. Like I'm talking like five different types of frozen fruit and a banana and some water as the base. 
And that's a lot of fiber and a lot of like vitamins and minerals. And it's, it's quite healthy and quite filling. And, and then for lunch would be my vegetable intake. And so I would do, um, vegetable juice and that evolved through the years into a really insane cocktail that people that worked with me at new wave and stone security. Remember I had a juicer and I would, I would juice an onion, a beet, turmeric, ginger, a full two lemons, actually a, a bundle of kale, a bundle of, um, Swiss chard and a bundle of spinach. And I'm trying to think if I missed anything. Yeah, that was it. And, and what would, how much liquid would that output? It'd be like two 12 ounce mason jars roughly. And so for lunch, I would drink one of those and it never got to the point, and we can tie this into the stoicism a little bit because there's a, a component of this that's part of the kind of the esquisis. Um, it was never comfortable. Like, it was always hard to do that. Like, and that was partly by design and partly because those ingredients, as I had read, were my way to maximize like nutritional intake. And because it was juiced, there was no fruits, there's no sugar content to this really it would maximize the uptake of those vitamins and minerals into the blood very rapidly. Now they're almost, there's no calories hardly in that juice. It's very, very low calorically. So by the time I got to dinner, I was really hungry. And eventually what, what got me away from doing that particular juice was I started doing a lot more endurance um, sports. And so I actually had to kind of tweak my fueling a little bit, but so then when I got to dinner, I would be doing a, um, just a bean and brown rice dish. That's it. Like, like a can of chickpeas, brown rice, and maybe some like salsa or something like that. And so I would eat that meal basically every day. And now how, that's, so how many calories are you consuming in that? Dish? Yeah. So I didn't actually track that, but I do know that the calorie, the most calories were coming from the smoothie. The least were coming from the vegetable juice. And then the bean and rice dish was probably relatively calorically dense, but I mean, all total, yeah, I mean, it was 1,500 to 2,000 calories, you know, and, a day. And how many, let's let's use that that smoothie in the morning, the juice in the midday, right. and then this, you know, rice bean concoction. How many days have you eaten that meal? Yeah, so it, it, it we transitioned out of that, like, so I don't, I don't hold to the really kind of insane dietary program I had. So like how was, long for that, oh, that uh, phase? I mean, a couple of years. Yeah. So, um, and that where, was where at, you literally 365 days in a row. No, no, no. So this is, yes, yeah, so I, I skipped over some steps there. So like you've got the, you got the Sassoul for dinner and then that transitioned when we moved, didn't have access to Sassoul, that transitioned to the more rigid, austere smoothie, homemade raw vegetable juice, beans for dinner. So um, that was kind of the middle phase, I would say. And so all the while, so like I'm swimming, I'm doing this calisthenic workout stuff. And um, I, I bought a weight vest and would like do like longer walks just with the weight vest. And by the way, I would highly recommend that. I, I do that. We have a lot of hills in our yeah, area. It is such an easy, if, you, if you're like, oh, I'm going to go have a conversation with a friend yep. on the phone or it's fantastic. It, want to listen to a podcast, yep. want to just get out in nature, a yes. great thing to just add 30 to 40% more calorie burn. Absolutely. Yeah. It, for a walk. Like, and, um, I used to do that occasionally. And, and I, 
I have a very complicated history with running and, you know, I was really overweight as a kid and my parents rightly so thought that I needed to lose weight. And the way to do that was to run. And so I was made to run, um, from like ninth grade on until I got to college, obviously, um, I was made to run like every day for at least like three miles. And, you know, this included Lake Johnson in the middle of the summer here in Raleigh. If my, at the time, 70 something year old granddad could run six miles out there and I could barely run like a mile. I mean, it was crazy. Like, and, um, so I, I really never liked running. And as soon as I kind of lost weight as a high schooler, cause I was doing more workouts, I regained all that, like at the end of college and then into, into marriage. So, um, I stopped running and just was like, I'm never going to do this again. But as the weight started coming off, I could go for like, uh, you know, a really short run, maybe at the little greenway trailhead that we had near our place. Um, but I started just setting a timer and Joel and I've talked about this too. Um, so I just do out and backs and we were living in Clayton at the time. And so I would just, I would get up, go outside. I would set an interval timer for, I can't remember where I started 10 minutes, probably less actually. And when it would buzz, I would turn around and I would come home. And so meaning you would walk for 10 minutes, no, I'd run, you would yeah. run for 10 it, minutes. And it I would say buzz. 10 was a starting point. It was actually probably lower, but like, so, so the total run would be 20, 20 minutes. Minute That's right. And, and so the interval just got longer and longer and longer. And eventually my brother was like, Hey man, you, why don't you run an Umstead? Like, you know, have you even gone out there? And I was like, wow, what are you talking about? Like, what? No, never even really been there. And so I went out and, uh, and ran some there and just absolutely fell in love with trail running and then running like subsequently. And, and so I, that is my favorite thing to do. Like, you know, went from just hating it, but all the while, like, you know, I'm doing swimming, cycling, and this kind of light calisthenic strength training. And that coupled with the eating is really taking weight off. So at the point where I started running more, I was already down, you know, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 pounds. And, and that just obviously takes it off even more, you know, pretty high calorie burn, but yeah. And then that evolved into ultra distance running. And I was going to ask, what's the furthest distance you've run? I uh, did a 50 miler in 2021. So the pilot mountain 50 miler and uh, Megan and I both did the 50 K in 2000 and I think it was 18 or 19. And, uh, yeah, Megan, Megan really got into like marathon running and, and that was also a motivator to run. Cause like she was running a lot and I was like, Oh, well, she's out there. Like, I'm, what am I going to be doing? You know? And so I kind of started running. We don't run together, but you know, we were both running weird thing about running with people. It's, you know, I, I do it once a week with this run group, uh, not in Umstead, but that's it. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it all started with the food and, and it really was like for my personality, it's not really incremental. I mean, I, I tend to just kind of make these big changes and then, and then it's incremental within that large change. But even if you were to just swap out a meal, you know, and, and do like make your dinner vegan, or I think the easiest thing for people is probably smoothies in the morning. That's like a, it's fast. It's, they're super healthy. That's like a, a good way to dabble in that. Yeah, and you can still load it up with natural sugars with fruit and everything. Exactly. It still yeah. tastes great. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I don't, I try not to add stuff to it. Like I'm not going to pour maple syrup into something, but no, I'm not a, you know, if it's got sugar in it, I think it's bad. Like, I mean, as a vegan, you can't really be paleo or anti-sugar. Right. But if you're Everything's carbs I eat basically. Right. But if you're going from, Hey, I'm eating two sausage biscuits to oh, yeah. I'm putting peanut butter and honey in, in a fruit smoothie, like you're, that's Do a it. win. It's a win. And, and there was a different book that I read called how not to die. Catchy title. Right. And, um, it was really, so, so a big piece of this, like from the, the reading standpoint is 
I tend to respond to kind of the science behind something better than I, I do the kind of the pathos. So like if someone's giving me this really emotional appeal to do something, I'm pretty much not listening to them. So if you give me a, a really good set of reasons and the premises really hold up and they make sense and you don't have a lot of them, like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be listening to that. And, uh, and so the, the science of these books is what really kind of compelled me to do that about, um, you know, how a lot of the, the ailments that affect Americans are essentially preventable. And, you know, I had always kind of grown up hearing the, the drumbeat of like, well, if your family has high cholesterol, you're going to have high cholesterol. Like, well, that's, that's just what happens as you get older. And it's like, you know, I always accepted that. And, and, and the folks that said that weren't lying, they should know. And, you know, then I think when you start reading about some of these things like heart disease, you realize that like, oh man, like, yeah, you can really do something about that. Like high cholesterol, you can do something about that. Like, have you read Outlive? I've not read I'll Live. Do you know the book? No. So um, it may, it, I think it is the book for you because it talks oh, cool. about... Who's the, who's the author? It's not Peter Atia. It, it is Peter Atia. Oh, wait. Is that the new one? Yeah. Oh, well, sorry. Maybe not, I, super, maybe the, not super new, but it's I've like... I've listened like to a podcast super. where he's discussed some of his... Yeah, okay. I'm familiar with the, with the content. Yeah, yeah, but he... I mean, he approaches it from both a... He's going to tell a story, but it's also he's a doctor, so he's going to. Mm, mm. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, science based evidence, but he's talking about the four horsemen of, hey, here's how we die: we die from heart disease, we die from let's see if I can get all these. We we die from heart disease, we die from cancer, we die from uh, neurological disease, okay. and we die from because there's obviously like accidental death and like all. These I mean, are things, you but, including like diabetes? Diabetes, yes, diabetes. That, the diabetes. comorbidities, because diabetics usually have something else that's going to result from that. But but, but it, okay. that, that was the other one. It was, yeah, it was yeah, diabetes, heart disease, um, cancer, and neurological disease. And he's like, all of them. You there are so many different ways yes. to reduce your risk, yep. no matter what your hereditary disposition is or anything like that. So that that book maybe the way you were talking about that, it, I yeah, feel like you that is uh, that. Joel. I think has either read it or told me to read it. Um, I actually, I recommended it to a friend having not read it, but listened to him being interviewed on a podcast. My friend actually read it and told me I should read it. So, uh, so, so now being told to read it again, I was like, yeah, I, I might need to pick that one up. I've been looking for a good health related book too. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's tough. Cause like my, you know, my granddad, the person that I referenced was running six miles a day in his seventies. You know, he had, I believe it was uh, quintuple bypass surgery. Like, and that was shocking to me. Because, like, this is a very healthy man. Like, I mean, he is he's the most active person I've ever seen that age. And the only thing I can think of is that, you know, there's a dietary component to that. And he was, uh, he was diabetic, and he controlled it well. But this is kind of the meat and potatoes generation as well. And, you know, grew up in a small town. And I don't know that wouldn't have happened if he had kind of been a vegan for 40 years or had been predominantly plant-based I'm not really sure but that moment that was definitely because you know this was someone that I you know looked up to from a health stamp like you are what I want to be at that age and I still feel that way like um I've just made a modification to it with with the diet but yeah that was definitely a moment because I think I was a sophomore in college and I I think that kind of tucked away as like something's off here like I, I don't know what it is but like I think some of the anecdotal information that or at least my, my understanding of food and the role of exercising, you know, you, you kind of hear that, well, if you exercise, you can eat whatever you want. That's not true. Like, don't do that. Like, I mean, 
sure, exercising will allow you to stay fit and, and have, you know, your cake every night, but like the cake is going to clog your heart. And because your brain is comprised of blood vessels too, it can also put plaque there. And that plaque is linked to Alzheimer's and a variety of other neurological uh, ailments. And um, there's just so much that can be done. And I think we talked about this a little bit, but like, I think a lot of it is just Americans and, and for that matter, probably most maybe Westerners in general, like they just don't realize how much is in their control. And I, I think people really love to put the, well, the blame, but, uh, but they love to put the blame somewhere else. And, uh, it's called the attribution bias, right? Like, you know, you, uh, all the good things that happen are because you're brilliant and you're beautiful and all the bad things that happen are because of bad luck and the, you know, the fates, uh, misaligned. And, uh, that's just not true. Like, I mean, a lot of the, the good and the bad stuff that happens to you is just you, not all of it, but a lot of it. And, um, you know, I think the dietary thing is, is one that you encounter that sentiment a lot. Just this, like, I can't help it. It's in my family or it's just how I was raised or like, well, what are you going to do? Like you got one life to live. I'm like, I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like you're, you're like 40 or like in your thirties. I mean, can you please just, make some changes. Like if not for yourself, for your family, like the people that love you, I mean, like you you have totally resigned to this early, I'm not going to say death because like modern medicine really is almost miraculous and what it can do to keep someone going, but your health span, which I think Peter Atia talks a lot about the health span is he optimizes his health span. So every, I think I remember him saying everything he does is engineered for how that last like 15 or 20 years is going to be. What, what condition am I going to be in? Right. Are you, are you able to pick up your grandchildren? Exactly. Or are you sitting in a chair? Exactly. Not moving for 12 hours a day. Yeah. And it's like, I don't fully agree with the idea of all of my decisions are oriented around the, the last 20 years of my life, but that makes sense to me. Like, you know, the, the ideal way to go is to be in perfectly good health in your eighties or nineties. And then you just drop dead, you know, or, I don't know, fall off a cliff or something, you know, a horrible accident probably would be a decent way to die. I would think, uh, why isn't that in your initial get to know you questions? <laughs> would you rather, <laughs> you know, start off on a morbid note, right? <laughs> well, we've um, already involved kidnapping, all sorts of things. Yeah, why not yeah. bring that into the, into um, the realm here? You, you made a comment earlier about minimizing decision-making with your clothes, with your, yeah. uh, with your eating. And I think that, we get into a decision fatigue. No, oh, for sure. Yeah. As humans, and so walk us through your mindset and how that's evolved over time, because I think it'll bring in elements of stoicism and other things, and how you yeah, how definitely. you think. But I think it's really important. It's a really important concept that not many of us think about. Yeah, yeah. There, there's been some good research that I'm not entirely familiar with published on you know the psychology of making decisions and you know, some pretty sinister marketing plans that have emerged from that research. Uh, you know, I, I think a classic example is, um, you know, really boutique high-end shops or restaurants that give you like very few things to select from. Well, it's not really sinister. Actually, that's probably just helpful because you, you feel more satisfaction going into those places because you just don't have that many options. Um, and you have, don't have to... Have you heard of the... Um, there's, there's two types of decision makers. There's a satisficer and a maximizer. I actually have heard those terms, yes. So a satisficer yeah, yeah, yeah. is is someone who's like, hey, I'm presented with five options. I'm gonna make the decision quick. I know all of them, they'll be fine. I know I'm not I know I'm 
there's a probability that I'm not going to make the perfect decision, right. but I'm going to make it fast and whatever. The maximizer is going to be the person who will probably end up with the best outcome or decision. They'll, they'll pick the right mm. choice, but they will labor over it for longer right? and take a lot more, st- incorporate a lot more stress into their yeah. life in, in, yeah. in decisioning. And the research says that the satisficer is happier. The person that who makes so much the sense. person who didn't labor over it, who did, who just said, "Hey, I'm just content with eighty percent, ninety percent. That's right. fine. I don't need the hundred percent." Even though I didn't get, I don't. I'm not always going to get the right answer. But it's interesting. I've talked to a lot of people. I would imagine you're a satisficer, but there are there are aspects of life where it's, it, where I talk to people and they're like, "Hey, I'm a maximizer in this area of my life, but in other areas of my life, I'm a satisficer." Right, like. If y'all are talking about going out to dinner, you and your mm-hmm. wife are going, you're going to go out to dinner. Are you a maximizer or a satisficer? Yeah, I think I'm a maximizer, pretty hardcore, which is why that I, is surprising. I well, but this is the answer to your question about limiting what I do with the food, the dress, etc. I manipulate my environment to prevent myself from like falling as much as possible to falling into some of those traps. So like, um. I do not subscribe to the belief because I think it runs contrary to the research on how willpower works, like cognitively, that people people discredit other folks that like remove items from their environment as a method of self-control because they would say something like, well, that's weak. You shouldn't have to do that. You should be able to just have the junk food all over your house. Like, no, 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 that's bad science. Like, it's smart to take the stuff out of your house. Like, where possible. I'm not saying that you just destroy your environment for the sake of you know something, but like if you can change things like to- another example is like, Hey, I want to stop. I, I watch TV way too often. Maybe like, and so I'm just going to like literally hide the remote or have, yeah. have my, my yeah. kid go hide it somewhere. There's nothing wrong with that. Like th- there's nothing contemptible about somebody that, or just gets rid of their TVs. Like I, like, like if you, if you told me that and then said, you know what? I'm taking the TVs out of the house. Like I would say good for you. Like, I mean, there's, there's good science to suggest you will be successful at that. Whereas the other person might not. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would probably put myself as a maximizer. Um, but the problem I have, so with the dinner conversation specifically is that I am in a relationship with somebody. That's the prop. That's the wrinkle in my strategies. I'm not by myself. If I'm alone, I can come up with all sorts of things that optimize kind of the way that I operate. And so for dinner, for example, oh no, I'll go to the same place. Like probably every single night. I told you we went to Sassoul every night for a year. I was not exaggerating. Like, I mean, I, I sorry, it's not 365. I mean, but Monday through Friday, we were at Sassoul. They threw me a birthday party. Like one of the guys that worked there gave me a present. Like, I mean, the amount of revenue you gave them yeah, I mean, is, is deserving. Yeah, if that doesn't say anything, like, I mean, it, it's, and they're great people. Like, it's a great restaurant. And, and that was uh, a shout vital. out to the uh, cilantro line or cilantro jalapeno hummus. Oh my gosh. So yeah. good. And the mujadra. Oh, oh, the mujadra. Am I saying that right? Mujadra? Anyways. Um, but, uh, but your wife comes up to you and she's like, hey, we're going to go out to dinner tonight. Where do you want to go? Are you like instantly like, I'm just going to go here? Or yeah, yeah. are you deliberating for seven minutes on Google maps, looking at the, at the four, five star. Okay. So not that it's not that I, there's deliberation. I, I would modify that question slightly. It's the, why are you deliberating? So I am deliberating, but it's really a question of, well, why would I be doing that deliberation? Is it to maximize 
personally? Like, or is it because I'm wondering what she wants? I don't care what the ratings are. Like, I don't care about the reviews because like I said, if I was by myself, it wouldn't be, there'd be no thought. I'd be gone. I would just go somewhere because I usually know what I'm feeling. I'm just going to go. But as anyone that's married or is in a serious relationship knows, like, it's not that simple with this other person. Like, you have to, you have to give consideration to them. Like, you have to... Well, it's the classic... Try to anticipate, even though they're not being told specifically what they want. Like, <laughs> it's the classic, you know, well, hey, do you want to go to spot A or spot B? And I'm like, I don't know. Where do you want to go? She's like, well, I don't know. Well, you tell me. And then I say spot B. And she's like, oh, well, I, I kind of want to go to spot A. Exactly. That really throws me off kilter. Like, because I'm good to go. But the, the answer I give to the question, that's where I want to go. And, uh, you know, so it's kind of a weird way of, of, of looking at that, I guess. But, um, yeah, so to some extent I try to change the environment to, to reduce the harmful effects of the maximization tendencies. So how did that, Um, uh, how did that manifest itself in the diet as you, as you began to, to do the new diet stuff? Coming up with a maximally nutritious set of meals and eating those every single time. Like that, that was the answer to that. Like I, I basically looked and said, okay, these fruits taste good, but they also balance. They all have kind of a slightly different profile nutrient wise. And like for the vegetables in that, that nasty juice, like those vegetables all had something very unique in them. Like ginger and turmeric are very powerful. Like, I mean the onion, like it's a juiced onion to be clear. I think I said that, but there's an onion in this juice. No juice shop in Raleigh will give you an onion in their vegetable juice. I can guarantee that. Cause I've gone to a lot of them and, and, and so, so I still do the, the, the vegetable juice for lunch. It's just, I don't make it. I go to, um, uh, not really raw, uh, cold off the press. Um, and sometimes really raw and they have a level five. There's no fruit. It's important for me. There's no, you're fruit. the only one that gets it. I'm one of the few people that get it as consistently as I do. Yeah. So but, you've, so you've made the decision in advance. You've methodically said, these are the things I'm going to have. Yes. And then you have all the ingredients necessary so that yeah. When lunchtime comes around, that's right. there's no excuse like, oh, right. I don't have the onion or I don't have the kale right. or I don't have this. Oh, let me just grab a, like a peanut butter yep. jelly. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I mean, so in a sense, like, yes, yeah, the satisficer, you know, pieces there too. Cause like, also I'm not, I'm not sweating about things that I mean, I'm not losing sleep about what opportunity costs I would have when I've made a decision. That's not in my thought process. It's not really, uh, there's no benefit to thinking about what should have been like, I mean, there's only a benefit in looking ahead and saying like, okay, if I made the wrong decision in so much as that's going to affect subsequent decisions, it's relevant, but if it doesn't, it's not relevant. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think there's some, I think there's some tricks that people can kind of employ and it might be one of the greatest dietary tricks for food is, is beans and like brown rice because it's fiber. Like, you know, you think that eating a bowl of chickpeas and brown rice with some salsa is not that filling, but like, go do that. I mean, you're full afterwards. I mean, it's just, it's, there's a lot of insoluble fiber in there. Like it's not even going into the the bloodstream. It's just making you feel full. Yeah. Anytime a diet excludes beans, I just immediately would say that's bogus. Like there's way too much research on like the power of legumes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if your diet, I mean, that's like the. Yes, the Pythagoreans, I don't know if you knew that, like the part of their religious cult, they didn't eat beans. Like it's weird stuff. Like, I mean, yeah, 
this is a weird group of people, but they gave us some pretty powerful math. But um, we're we'll always remember the Pythagorean theorem. Yeah. Always Pythagorean theorem. That's right. Oh. Um, and the irrational numbers, and they threw the guy or drowned him or something. That was always a story. I don't know. It sounds apocryphal, but you know, I don't know. Fun thing to believe, at least. How has the minimizing decision making weaved its way into other parts of your life? I mean, it's really trying to kind of view life through a, a perspective of like optionality, and I think that's really important is to kind of like be able to size up. You have all these decisions and so realize as I'm saying this, this is probably fitting the bill perfectly to the satisficer that you're saying, but it's, it's having all these things that are available to you to do. And, you know, it's understanding like the probability of all those things activating, like if they're mutually incompatible um, and the cost to delay acting in some capacity but trying to simplify and not like overthink the the infinite possibilities because that's really what you're dealing with is not accepting like the fact that you're finite and um there was a talk i can't remember the name of the guy but um it was on the uh the waking up app and it was a series on like um finitude and just this idea that so much psychological suffering comes from uh, failing to acknowledge that basic fact that when you choose to do one thing, you're excluding this enormous universe of possibilities. And when you multiply that for every unit of time you want to look at, it's a, it's infinite. Like, and I think, I think having that perspective actually has helped because that's something that I don't know, as, as a younger person, I probably struggled with more was, you know, kind of managing opportunity costs. And like, you know, I've always been somebody that's pretty good about like, i I love, I get really interested in something. I dive really deep into it and research it. And, and then I will just totally move on. And, um, there've been some things that have been very steady and have lasted a very long time, but, but the interests tend to, to kind of come and go, but there's a, a great amount of passion and depth, uh, that accompanies that. But, but yeah, like, I don't know. I mean, simplifying as much as possible, some of the decisions that you make all the time, that's really the key thing for me because it's not that I'm trying to just cut down my universe. I'm trying to cut down the things that really aren't that valuable to me so that I have a lot more energy to focus on things that are. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that's Steve Jobs' thing with his turtlenecks and, you know, a variety of people have written and talked about that sort of idea. But, um, I mean, that really is the gist of it. It's like, if I don't have to think about every meal I'm going to make, like, I just, that's so much less stress for me during the day. If I just know, you know, I'm going to do this on this day. And like, I mean, so much of that aspect, those aspects of my life are totally routine. Like, I mean, you could set your clock by the, the ways that I work out and, you know, more or less how I eat and stuff like that. But, um, I've loosened up more recently. It's not been a, you know, I, I don't drink like an onion infused vegetable juice now. It's just a normal, you know, uh, it's not like I'm, I'm dry heaving. Literally, I would like stand over the sink drinking this juice because it was so, oh, so nasty. Like it makes me like kind of cringe a little bit thinking of it. Um, yeah, Megan told me at one point the this does happen. The smell of the juice was coming through my skin. So you like I I had a if the listeners scent. didn't want to do it now <laughs> didn't like, want to do yeah, it before <laughs> I had a different scent because of that vegetable juice that I was drinking, not the one that I get from cold off the press. That's delicious. Like it's super healthy and doesn't make you smell funny. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's, that's where simplicity comes in. I, I don't think that simplicity is the ultimate goal. Um, 
you know, I, I think that making anything the ultimate goal like that's just going to leave you in a, a bit of a jam. I mean, I think I think deploying it strategically um, has a lot of real benefits for someone's life. And, you know, it's a way for them to just narrow the universe and act. Because if you think you've got all these infinite things and infinite steps, you know, um, you familiar with Zeno's paradox, the whole, you know, to get... To get from uh, one to two, you have to first go halfway, and to get to the halfway, you have to go halfway there, and then it keeps getting half. Well, it's infinite; it's an infinitesimal, and and so you can never get from point A to point B. And so the story goes: the person like walks across the room and like punches the guy, or like shoots the arrow at him. It's like, well, <laughs> I did. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> I made it. Uh, you know, and it's a uh, yeah. There's some math behind that that calculus dealt with but so I, I think you can get bogged down sometime in thinking like well i've got these this infinite number of steps i've got to take just to get from point a to point but it's like no simplify it and just take the step you know and 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 try to that's how i think you can really leverage simplicity but yeah if you're if you're overly focused on it you're going to miss out on the richness of whatever life you live is going to be very complex and right. you know it's a necessary tool for navigating that yeah and i think what a lot of people face as they go through or attempt to go through a journey like you've been through specifically around weight loss is setbacks. Yeah. And I was looking back before our conversation, I was looking back, I had read trying to understand the Stoics more. Um, this was a couple of years ago. I read the Stoic challenge and just a very high level introduction. That to Stoicism. Holiday? Was that the guy that wrote that? Or it may have been Ryan person? holiday. I can't recall yeah. if it was him or not. I think it, it may have been a recommendation from something that he, he posted or something, but um, it was a great introduction to stoicism. And I was looking back at the notes that I made a couple of years ago on that book. And one thing that I read that I'm going to read to you um, around setbacks, and I wanted just your input. Setbacks are a test of our character and resilience. And setbacks are not bad. They are vehicles for personal transformation. And then the biggest cost of a setback is the emotional distress you allow yourself to experience. Yeah, it's a very modern rendition of some Stoic principles, but yeah, um, I mean, I think cognitive reframing is a pretty common tool now for like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is, you know, a modern set of like counseling or uh, psychotherapy principles that have some grounding in Stoicism. Um, but yeah, I mean, viewing the setbacks, I mean, it, really, it sounds simple saying that, that you can just kind of tweak them and make them positive, but it is that simple, oddly enough. Now, I'm not talking about like PTSD or things that are changing kind of the neural uh, makeup and you, you kind of relive. Um, that's a slight detour on that. But I remember learning about this not that long ago that the reason that PTSD, I've never, I've never experienced that, but uh, no one does, but I know a lot of people do. It's so problematic is the somehow the barrier between uh, your body fully engaging in the emotions of that moment gets dropped. So like normally when you recall something, you do not, your body does not go into the same emotional state as it does when you were in the thing. So it's a, it's an obvious reason that we don't do that because it allows us to function as people and experience bad things and still reach a, a place of uh, your kind of homeostasis. Um, when that barrier goes away, you like, you know, cortisol spikes, like all the adrenal adrenal glands, like pump. Like, I mean, it's a, it, it's, it's horrible. 
That being said, like, you know, normally reframing a past situation is a matter of just kind of rewriting it a little bit. Like, I mean, and people think of memories in the past as some sort of fixed thing. It's not like your memories are, you know, kind of embedded in this biological network computer. They're always changing. Every time you recall them, they're being modified. And so it stands to reason that, that with time that we could actually modify and reframe like a setback and extract the things from that that would allow us to, to grow or improve from that. Um, assuming the setback has allowed us to live, <laughs> obviously. Valid point. Yeah, yeah, it goes without saying. Um, again, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to endorse like the, you know, the sort of you, you always kind of gain or grow from like bad things. Um, there are bad things you don't really come back from sometimes. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. The, the Stoics were, um, there were many things and a lot of what they did promoted psychological resilience but it was still a religion to some extent and you know there was a there was kind of a, a faith-based component to it um not as strong as some of the other like ancient like groups but uh they're they're um nonetheless uh but yeah i mean the idea of like ascesis this sort of austerity this training uh is deeply embedded in stoicism and it's to me it's just as simple as saying that all of life essentially is training and you are continually training for those moments where like you eventually enter the ring and the ring can be that big fill in the blank could be the big confrontation. You don't know you're going to have that. You may never have it. It could be the, the big presentation, big, whatever. And it's taking all these little steps. And I think we talked about this last time. It's kind of that incremental approach to it. it's not taking, um, it's not that you have to change your life radically. And, and I think that's worth saying too, because a lot of what I've been talking about are these radical pivots and radical changes, but like those only happen because of very small incremental steps. And then once that pivot happens, everything beyond that for me is very incremental, slow, methodical, process driven. And then that produces those big changes. Yeah, it so compounds. I'm a firm believer right. in that. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, there's a, there's a quote. Um, so for anyone that is interested in stoicism and is familiar with like, meditations by Marcus Aurelius and maybe, maybe some of Seneca's writings. Um, and then the modern kind of interpretations, Ryan holiday and others I actually would really encourage people to read Epictetus's discourses, Epictetus of the Stoics that are, that are known. And a lot of these guys, their writing just didn't survive, um, antiquity, but of the Stoics that people know, he was the one that really had a hard life. And that's important. Um, that context is very important. Marcus Aurelius was an emperor. Uh, Seneca was one, if not the most wealthy men in the Roman Empire at the time. These are men that wrote about hardship, but largely experienced internal suffering. Epictetus was a slave. And I think that's really critical in kind of uh, when you read their writings and, and Epictetus's discourses are it's just that it's, it's him basically delivering lectures and one of his students recorded those. But one of the quotes sounds morbid and a lot of the stuff sounds morbid because you're focused on death. They focused on death a lot. Like, and it's not because like, you know, that helps you live. It, it, it gives you the context to, you know, to live more fully, but morbid and a little bit creepy. But one of the quotes that for some reason I remember, and I don't remember a lot more than this, I don't think he was saying this figuratively. I think he actually meant to do this. He told parents or he thought that parents should whisper into their children's ears while they were asleep that tomorrow you may be dead. And, and that that was a very vivid way. 
But, but think about the point he's making is a very vivid way of reminding yourself that the most precious thing you have on this earth could be gone in an instant. And it is a daily reminder of that fact. And, and I think the ancients were a little bit more uh, acquainted with death than we are. And so I think that sort of advice, as spooky as that sounds, some version of that, quite frankly, is appropriate to modern life. That just because we have great medicine and safe cars and big houses and, you know, whatever, it's like, we're just as close to dying as those people were. Yeah. And, and I think that's a real driver for stoicism um, is kind of, of bearing that in mind. And, uh, and also just, you know, for Seneca and, and Epictetus advocated doing this too, it's this idea of taking some time to live kind of in voluntary poverty and uh, the bean thing, humorously enough, I didn't know this at the time, but that is actually something that they suggested doing. So to eat like a poor person in Roman times was essentially to eat beans. And did not know that at the time, but uh, ended up emulating the Stoics kind of accidentally. Yeah, and then the Cynics, which were kind of the ascetic uh, Stoics, which is weird because most of the Stoics, to some degree, were seen as ascetics. But, um, but the Cynics particularly were. They typically lived on the street. Diogenes was the most famous one, lived in a barrel and would accost people uh, on the streets. They lived a, a true life of, well, they were unencumbered and hardship, poverty, you know, whatever. And, and they thought that that was really the only way that you could truly live kind of a happy life um, or uh, eudaimonia. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I don't really necessarily agree with that. I think Diogenes was a little crazy, um, but there are other people that did versions of that. I, I can't remember the, he was a Greek or a Roman uh, guy that uh, was very wealthy and gave up all just, turned it all over and became a beggar basically. And it's hard to know how much of that's apocryphal, but um, I think some of that is real. Uh, and, you know, there's some lessons to be learned by that. You know, you don't need to go and give away all your, your money, but I don't know. I mean, were those people really happy at the end of the day? I mean, maybe they were happier. Um, you don't really know until you do that kind of thing. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And so I will probably not be whispering into my child's, years this evening i that, hope no one really does that maybe you just do that in your head but to remind yourself but <laughs> it did it did remind me of two other things that i recall reading from that book that i referenced other stoic challenge it was two things it was one this concept called prospective retrospection okay which is realizing in the present moment that your future self could be very jealous of what you're doing right now hmm. so maybe you're if I'll use me as an example with three kids, it can be extremely loud. It's the end of the day. You've had a long day and you're like, Oh my gosh, I, I just can't wait till bedtime. Like I can't wait until we, I just have like a moment of peace and these kids are like, I love them, but they're just all over the place when in, yeah, when they're 30 oh, and I'm yeah, 70, yeah. like I would probably kill for five minutes of that moment of watching my kids be crazy and right. loud and whatever, because that isn't my life anymore. And so that, that reminded me of that. But then the other probably more direct relation was last time meditation. So it's like, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. Which yeah. is basically saying, Hey, this could be the last yep. time that I'm sitting in front of okay. Zach having a conversation and putting you in the, to be able to put yourself in the present moment to realize like, well, probability states that it's not the last time this could be the last could time. Be. So, yep. so how and it reframes 
the yeah. focus and to be able Absolutely. to be present and let's not worry about anything else. This is the most important thing right now. Yeah. And, and kind of a version of that. I remember encountering this uh, argument that feels a little esoteric, but I don't think it really is at the end of the day um, that a, uh, he was a, he was an MIT um, philosopher or something. And he had kind of come up with this mathematical idea of describing why I don't know all the details of it, but he was essentially describing why whatever you're experiencing right now, there are far more ways for your life to be worse than better. And if you stop and think about the math behind that and the probabilities, like, again, I, I think in all but the most terrible situations. And right, I think concentration camp, basically. That, that is right. the exception of this rule. He's talking about a person that is not in a current state of extreme suffering or maximal suffering, subjective suffering, um, that, that there are just so many more ways for you to be hurting more or in more pain or in more suffering, but also when you project something that could be better. And that's really the crux of his, arg his argument too, because we all think that like it could be better if, you know, if we had this, more money, better job, whatever. That's really where the argument kind of lands because it's like you're coming up with a really simplistic idea that you think is deterministic. You think that with these three steps, you're going to be guaranteed this outcome. You're not actually considering the probabilities of achieving that sort of thing. And when you start to weigh all that, you realize that like at best you could hope to be pretty much where you are now. Like, I mean, and, and so I thought that was a really intriguing kind of idea of saying like, look, don't pine for the future that you think is going to be better. Like, you know, exist now and, 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 and take what you have and know again, with the obvious exceptions, know that like, you know, there are more ways for this to be worse. And I think that's also just entropy. Like, um, yeah, which it, I was like, Oh yeah, that, that kind of, that makes sense. You know? Right. I mean, does that make sense? It absolutely does. Yeah. And it, it, this is way too simple of an example because it's not really suffering, but it made me think of a graph I saw around a people wanting the new iPhone. It's like getting, I have a, you have a certain, if you think of a graph, you have a certain baseline of happiness. I'm at, I'm at 70 happiness right now. Yeah. And I'm going to go and I think I will be happier if I go get this thing, right? This is more materialistic yep, type, yep. type stuff, but okay, I'm gonna go get this thing. And then I'm really, ha I go get this new iPhone. You'll be right back down to 70. And it's, I, I jump up to 90. I'm yep. like, oh my gosh, yep. this is fantastic. And then a week later, I'm right back to 70. Right back to 70. But I have 800 less dollars. Yep. I think the one of the experiments with that was lottery winners and um, uh, quadriplegics or people that had suffered um, severe injury. And, you know, they end up in the same place, basically, like happiness-wise. Uh, and, yeah, it's weird to think about that. But that, that's kind of back to we were talking a little bit about the, you know, kind of being having a research orientation, like where possible, like, you know, try to understand it and, and maybe actually apply and live by, you know, some of the, the things that you read and, and, you know, a, a panel of credible experts say are, is true. And I think it will surprise you kind of what happens as a result of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, I don't know if you've read the book. Um, it's, I, I think I'm gonna mispronounce the guy's name. He's, uh, he's Jewish. Y Yuri Harari, uh, Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens. Yep. Yeah. And Homo Deus. Homo Deus is the, or, uh, yeah, is that right? Homo Deus is the sequel to that. Sequel. Yep. Which I didn't find as, as illuminating. Yep. I agree. Um, but, uh, but Homo sapiens 
the thing I really remember about that book was a discussion of base level happiness. And he was describing how, um, I was just so impactful to me because like, you know, my family, like most families has, has very different baseline happiness levels for different people. Like my grandmother is incredibly happy. She's a very content person. She's a very happy person. Like her base is maybe an eight out of 10, you know? And, and so you see folks like that. And then, you know, if you look around, you're also given images of people that you assume are like that, whether they're, whether they are or not is beside the point you're presented with these, these people that are at this higher level of happiness, but you're also kind of told or led to believe maybe implicitly that you can achieve these sorts of elevated and sorry, sustained and elevated levels of happiness. And I remember the, the, the point he made was so simple. He was like, you are born it's hormonal. It's chemical. Like basically the levels of contentment, happiness, whatever, like they're brain states. It's not magic. Like, and you can change brain states. Obviously there's, there's, there's plasticity there. Like that can, that can be altered, but not to the degree you probably think like you can't go from a three to an eight. That was his point. And I was like, huh? Well, that makes a lot of sense. Like, because I mean, I remember at times thinking like, you know, looking around, like, what am I missing? Like, why do I not really feel like that? And I remember thinking like, oh yeah, well, if, if you take the brain to be physical and material, which I do, I'm not a mind body dualist and, and you accept that premise. It's like, well, yeah, there's kind of a lot that's set up there and like, you can move things within ranges, but like without some sort of pharmacological intervention, you're not going to be an eight. Like, like I will not be my grandmother. I can guarantee you that. Interesting. I've never really thought yeah. about it that way. I've thought about it in terms of happiness and contentedness being a little bit different in that I'm just, that you can be a content person mm -hmm. and, and that happiness is almost like an elevated version of contentedness. It's like, I'm, I'm normally a five, which, would, which I would say I'm content. I, I'm, you know, bad things happen. Good things happen. Like the range is not really changing that much, but happiness is a fleeting thing in, in the way I would define that. But contentedness is almost, I've always thought of contentedness as like the, um, probably the, the thing that I feel like most people should strive for. You're almost kind of separating. It sounds like you're making the distinction between happiness as being more or less a spike in chemicals, neurochemicals, whereas contentedness is almost a product of like reflection, meditation, philosophy, introspection, something that maybe is more stable, like, or could be. Yes. That's, I yeah. think that would be how I would, how I think about it. And I don't, I don't disagree with that distinction. Um, I, I think that, that the happiness piece, if we, if we sit on the kind of the neurochemical side of that, like, I think that's specifically what I'm talking about. And I believe this author was talking about as well, where it's like, there's just only so much fluctuation that you're going to have happen. Like, and, and that's not to say that you can't come up with or develop cognitively how you deal with that level. And I think that's where the contentedness comes from. It's understanding I'm at a three and not an eight and saying, I'm okay with that. Like, and, and, and it's even kind of rec we're talking about what we're talking about right now. It's, it's almost recognizing that in some things you just can't really do that much about it. Like, and you know, I realize that, you know, this podcast is 
ostensibly growth oriented change, but there are limits. Like, I think we talked about that last time. Like, and I, I think, I think knowing the knots is probably far more important than knowing what you can do. And, and I think understanding some of those limits is not, it's not unnecessarily like you're not like circumscribing yourself in some sort of bad way. I, I think you're appropriately doing that where, yeah, I think we did talk about this because, um, yeah, we a, talked about setting yeah, athlete. There's, there's some obvious examples that most people would agree with and, and they fail to, to take those obvious examples and realize that that's actually applicable in a lot of different areas of your right, life. Like you like, called out that I was not going to be in the NBA. That's right. I did say that you weren't going to be in the NBA. Uh, and, and neither will I. Um, and I've been training ever since, so uh, yeah. just look out. <laughs> check check ESPN2 in a couple of weeks. Yes. Uh, your son seems to be training for that as well. <laughs> but, like, some of that is, uh, you know, it feels like you're, you're kind of taking the wind out of somebody's sails. But, um, but, but acceptance of that, Yeah, acceptance of yeah. that is, and, and recognizing. There's some of your stoicism. There, it's like, yeah, it's like, it's like yeah. freeing. It's it freeing to, to accept your limits knowing that you can still have growth within the limit that you set. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And and knowing that like a lot of that is not, um, I don't know. I'm personally like knowing that a lot of kind of who I am, what I might become is not written kind of somewhere that the future is, you know, largely indetermined. Um, that is a really, I think pretty powerful concept that just gives you, Again, within its limits, because we're humans and, and every human has different, you know, capabilities. I mean, I watch those, I don't know why it's so depressing, but like when you watch those prodigy videos, like on YouTube, there's a 60 minute thing and it was documenting this, oh man, I don't know what he was, eight or something. And he had like, he taught himself, I think the entire um, high school math curriculum, in like two weeks, it's like eight or nine. And then he started at college. You know, at, I, he may have been 10 when he did that. Sorry, maybe not eight. I think they recognized his prodigious talent when he was maybe seven or eight. Um, and there was another, this little girl. Um, that was actually a sadder portrait, but uh, she was this brilliant, like, musical talent. And she could compose symphonies, like, in her head as, like, an 11-year-old. And the, the sadness with that one was that she could not silence the melodies. And so like when the camera, they let the camera roll after they like stopped shooting the interview and it it had her like, she was like kind of out in the yard and she was singing in an, in an opera voice. And then eventually they came back to the interview and they're like, yeah, I just, I just can't, you just kind of smile. She's like, I just can't turn it off. And I'm like, Oh, that is kind of sad. Anyways, all that to say, like the, the prodigy videos tend to be oddly depressing and also you can't look away but that's why they're depressing i think i think a lot of people they're being candid are probably deflated a little bit when they watch just incredibly exceptional people because like that makes the limits real and i think it's important for people to make those limits real and some of this with the growth mindset i mean you you mentioned this the setbacks like it's failure like you just have to fail you have to go out and like you have to be okay just falling on your face. I know that sounds so cliche, but like, I mean, it's just, if you're not willing to do that, like, you know, that's okay, but accept that your life will, will be far more narrow and narrow in a way that's unnecessary. I think, um, all of our lives are narrow, but, but this this unnecessarily narrow. That's right. Um, yeah, it's, but setting limits and saying, Hey, I'm not going to be in the NBA or the NFL or whatever, some 
I guess I could be a rocket scientist if I really applied myself, but also there are, because of the world we live in, there is so much optionality that you have to get rid of almost all of it. Yeah. That's back to being finite. You know, you imagine yourself, I think this a lot of times comes into play when you're thinking about organization. You're like, oh, if I had, if I had more time, if I just, if I just had a little bit more time, you know, I could uh, better manage my inbox or clean up the house or, you or you know. could just say no to basically everything except for the stuff that truly matters. Yeah. And then you'd have time. And it's like, actually, that's not true. Like if you had all the time in the world, well, sorry, not if you had all the time in the world, but like you're essentially without realizing it saying, I want to be God. And, and I'm not talking about somebody that just like, you know, maybe with a slight tweak of the turn of the dial, they could capture a little bit more time and, you know, maybe journal for five minutes or meditate or something. But, um, you know, but at the end of the day, like we just, we really hate to say that we are limited as people. And it's, I think it's so important to, to realize that we are and, you know, to operate really effectively within those boundaries, but also, and it sounds like a contradiction limited, but you know, aware of kind of the, the infinite number of possibilities within those limits. And so, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of back to Zeno right there. So like there, there are an infinite number of numbers between one and two. Like, I mean, yet we go from one to two and, but there's an infinity infinity inside of those two numbers. I mean, it's incredible. Like, and and I think that's personally, that's kind of how I view life is like, I mean, you know, we may be operating between a one and a two or one and a 10, but like there really are, there's an infinite number of like things inside of that relatively small space. Um, and you know, but we're also omitting so much because there's also an infinite number of numbers, right? Lots of different sized infinities. That's a different, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Cantor somehow and, has something to do with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah. speaking of limits, I, I know that your time is limited. I know my time is limited. So um, I think we're uh, teed up for a second, a third, shall I say, oh. in an interview at some point okay. uh, in the future as you're... Uh, Man, I got to think uh, of my hook real quick. I got I to gotta, I gotta drop my bag here in the house somewhere. <laughs> you know, I've, I've given up the kidnapping story. What, what else do I got? Like, have we talked about sleeping on the floor yet? Or was that in the last episode? <laughs> yes, that, the that, man, that's the... people's favorite fact, I think, to say about me. is the fact that I, I, I hear more people say that about me before I've said it than anyone. It's like the first thing I think Joel said, or maybe you said on the last episode. Yes, yeah. it was. I did bring it up. Because so I think one of your be... questions was, what would you want written on a billboard? I think that. Zach sleeps on the floor. I think that's it. Yeah. Um, it yeah. says all we need to know. That's, that's about it. Maybe. <laughs> well, we, we have built with Zach Stone. Zach, thanks for being on, man. I really yeah. appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I appreciate it. Hey listener, it's Clay. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the build with Clay podcast. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen so you can discover all the episodes and hear from others about their growth journey. If you know me at all, you know that I love feedback. So please rate the episode and provide your comments so I can grow and be better for you and our guests. For more content, you can find Build With Clay on Instagram at buildwithclay and head to claydavis.substack.com where you can sign up for a bi-weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're inspired to grow.